Well, good morning, and let me say what a joy it is to be here with you all. Uh, we have a very close relationship with this church. Many, many folks from uh, this wonderful uh, New Testament church has come uh, to Southeastern to study. Uh, your pastor, uh, you can call him Pastor Ryan or Dr. Bryce. Uh, I want you to know that he did superb work there in his doctoral work at Southeastern. So I'm just very thankful for a New Testament uh, mission-minded church uh, right here that's heartbeat is the same as that of Southeastern Seminary. And so I want to say thank you for praying for us. Thank you for giving to our school. I, I think you can be proud of what's going on there. I guess the best way I could say it is God in his kindness uh, gave my wife and me four sons. Uh, by his kindness, all are in the ministry today. And uh, three of the four are graduates of Southeastern Seminary with their master's degree one is graduated with his doctor's degree, like one of those, Nate, my oldest twin, will be here in a few weeks uh, to continue your study in the book of Ecclesiastes. So, again, very thankful for you all and appreciate all that you do for the cause of Christ and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I want you to take your Bible. Uh, as your pastor has told you, we're beginning today a study in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I have the blessing of taking on chapter 1, a passage that I've entitled, Why Life Without Jesus is Meaningless. And we'll look at the first chapter, all 18 verses, and I'm going to read them uh, for you before we begin. And then I'll make a passing uh, reading at the end of the book, because if you're going to understand Ecclesiastes properly, you have to read the first 12 uh, chapters and 8 verses in light of the final verses of the book. So, Chapter 1, verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil, the work at which he works and toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. And in essence, it starts all over again. Take the wind. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. Take water. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow Again, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it, the eyes not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And in one of the key phrases throughout the book, there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? No. It has been already in the ages before us. Uh, there is no remembrance of former things or better, I think, people, nor will there be any remembrance of later people yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I have applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, 
all is vanity. It's like a striving after wind. What is crooked? It cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My heart has been, has, has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and so I applied my heart to know knowledge. Well, that didn't work. So then I tried madness and folly. But I perceive this also is but a chasing after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases his sorrow. And then for just a moment, turn to chapter 12 and look at verse 9 to the end of the chapter. Chapter 12, verse 9. Besides being wise... The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed and collected, sayings they are given, now note this, by one shepherd. I have a question. How many of you, the Bible before you, has the word shepherd capitalized? Would you raise your hand? Personally, I think that's exactly correct. And I think Solomon has in view here the good shepherd of of, uh, Psalm 23, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is how the book guides us to the end, these trustworthy sayings, these reliable sayings are all given by one shepherd. And then he concludes, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. And I know your pastor would say this morning to that statement, amen and amen. And the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God, keep his commandments, For this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment and with every secret thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. The song won singer Peggy Lee a Grammy in 1969. Its words and melody, I believe, could have been written by King Solomon, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, if he were alive today. You say, well, Danny, what is this song that won her a Grammy all the way back in 1969? It is the song, Is That All There Is? And listen to what she wrote. I remember when I was a little girl, our house caught on fire. I'll never forget the look on my father's face as he gathered me up in his arms and raced through the burning building out on the pavement. And I stood there shivering in my pajamas and watched the whole world go up in flames. And when it was all over, I said to myself, is that all there is to a fire? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. And when I was 12 years old, 
My daddy took me to the circus, to the greatest show on earth. There were clowns and elephants and dancing bears and a beautiful lady in pink tights who flew high above our heads. And as I sat there watching, I had the feeling that something was missing. I don't know what, but when it was over, I said to myself, is that all there is to the circus? Is that all there is? And then I fell in love with the most wonderful boy in the world. We'd take long walks by the river or just sit for hours gazing into each other's eyes. We were so very much in love. Then one day he went away and I thought I'd die, but I didn't. And when I didn't, I said to myself, is that all there is to love? I know what you must be saying to yourselves. If that's the way she feels about it, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh, not me. I'm not ready for that final disappointment because I know just as well as I'm standing here talking to you that when that final moment comes and I'm breathing my last breath, I'll still be saying to myself, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. If that's all there is. Welcome to the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is actually a Greek term. It translates the Hebrew word kaheleth that is translated in our ESV as the word preacher in other translations, which I actually prefer teacher or even the leader of the assembly. Uh, Ecclesiastes, as you can already imagine, has been called a very strange book. And there were even some rabbis uh, before the time of Christ that believed it actually should not be in our Bible because it is so negative. It is so pessimistic about life and how it actually works. And yet at the same time, I would argue this morning, my friends, that no book of the Bible is more relevant in 21st century America than the book of Ecclesiastes, this book bursting forth with wisdom. Why? Because it bursts the bubble of what is called the American dream. It bursts the bubble and reveals the vanity, the foolishness, the meaningless of living life for the things of this world as if there is no world to come. It has been well said that Ecclesiastes is a book about life east of Eden following the fall of Genesis chapter 3 and a book written before the inauguration of the new heaven the new earth and the new Jerusalem that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22. In other words, Solomon knows what it used to be like in the Garden of Eden before the fall. But now as he looks around at the world that we actually have today, he sees it is shattered and broken, nothing more than a mere shell of its former glory. My friend Mark Dever, who pastors Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., puts it very well when he says, if the book of Proverbs is about wisdom for people who want success, the book of Ecclesiastes is wisdom for people who have success. Particularly, it is for individuals who have gotten what they wanted out of life, or at least what they thought 
they had wanted and still found it wanting. In other words, Ecclesiastes is a book that paints a perfect picture of the ultimate meaningless of life lived without and for Jesus Christ. Now, our passage this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, really sets the table for the rest of the book, a book that Bruce Walkie, a wonderful Old Testament scholar, calls the most misunderstood book in the entire Bible. And yet Herman Melville, the author of Moby Dick, said it is the truest of all the books in the Bible. And as I mentioned a moment ago, it only finds its resolution in chapter 12 where we are pointed at the end of the book to the one person who can give us meaning in this unbelievably meaningless, crazy, foolish, weird world, and that is the one shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom as John chapter 6 and verse 68 says, he and he alone has the words of eternal life. And so what I'm going to do this morning is walk us quickly through these 18 verses. You have an outline there in your bulletin. I'm going to make six observations about what we understand to be life as being meaningless without Jesus. Number one, without Jesus, you are here today and you're gone tomorrow. The book begins the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This, of course, must be referring to Solomon. Solomon reigned after Saul and after David. Uh, his reign was about uh, 971 through 931 B.C. Most likely, he is writing this book at the end of his life. Some have even said, well, he wrote the Song of Songs early in his life, possibly. He wrote Proverbs in the middle of his life. But then he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes at the end of his life because he had tried everything this world has to offer. And at the end, he says, vanity of vanities, it all is vanity. It's amazing. The one who asked God for wisdom and knowledge in 2 Chronicles chapter 1 and verse 11 will share in these 12 chapters what he has learned about living life, and it appears three times in our chapter. It is the key phrase, or one of the key phrases in the book, living life under the sun. You say, what does that phrase, living life under the sun, mean, Danny? It means, number one, living life as if God does not exist, or at least that God does not matter, and it is living life as if this life is all that there is. That is what he means by the phrase living life under the sun, or even one time in our text this morning, under heaven. Life as if there is no God, or at least God doesn't matter, God doesn't care, and living life as if this life is all that there is. John Phillips, the wonderful um, British preacher, said, if you want to understand the book of Ecclesiastes, go read Psalm 39. So in your notes, just mark out, I need to go home this afternoon and read Psalm 39. This was written by Solomon's daddy, David, and it does sound a whole lot like the book of Ecclesiastes. So it is written by a man who calls himself the preacher, the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then verse 2, here's his thesis statement. Here's the theme for the entirety of the book. The ESV says, vanity of vanity, says the teacher, vanity of vanity, all is 
vanity. When I teach Bible interpretation at the seminary, one of the things I encourage my students to do is what I call comparative translation. In other words, I will tell them, uh, most of our students use, I guess y'all use Ryan, the ESV here. They use the ESV as well, but some use the New American Standard. Some use the Christian Standard Bible. Some use the NIV. Some use the New Living uh, Bible. Uh, a lot of them, as I would encourage, will read, I would never preach from it, but read the message, which is a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. Well, uh, let's just do that very quickly. You've got the ESV there in front of you. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The Christian Standard Bible, absolute futility, says the teacher absolute futility, everything is futile. The NIV, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything meaningless. And then the message, smoke, nothing but smoke. There's nothing to anything. It is all smoke. Now, the key word to the book, is found there in verse 2, translated vanity in the ESV. It is the Hebrew word hevel. Uh, if you transliterated it, it would be H-E-V-E-E-L, hevel. The word occurs no less than 38 times in these 12 chapters. And literally, the word hevel means air, vapor, breath. But metaphorically, it is well translated vanity, futile, absurd, meaningless. And when the Bible does something like you see there in verse 2, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities. In Hebrew, unfortunately, they didn't have the word very. In other words, if I were to say to you all this morning, I love my wife, and wanted to really emphasize it, I would say, I love my wife very much. Or even I might even say, I love my wife very, very much. Well, what they would do is simply compound the word, and that is their way of giving a superlative. Think of the phrase, the holy of what? Holies, or the song of songs. And so when Solomon looks at life lived under the sun, Life apart from any relationship with God. Life as if all that is, is this life alone. He throws up his hands and he says, vanity. Vanity of vanities. It all is useless, meaningless, absurd. By the way, James said something very similar, did he not? In James chapter 4 and verse 14, when he described life. What is your life? For you are a mist. A vapor that appears for a little time and then you vanish. Here today, gone tomorrow is a very popular phrase that I have no doubt emerged from the book of Ecclesiastes. Here today, gone tomorrow, never to appear again. You see, you think you're important, but in this life, if there is no God, you ain't. You're not. You're just a, a vapor. You're just a momentary breath. Think of what it's like on a cold day. You go outside, you breathe, and what do you see? You see your breath. How long is it there? Just like that. Gone. Gone. Coming back? Nope. Any real meaning to it? Nope. 
apart from Jesus Christ, that's you. If you're here today, I don't mean to be ugly to you, but you're here today, you don't know Christ. Bottom line, your life doesn't mean much. Your life doesn't mean much. In fact, think of it this way. Why do we have tombstones? I mean, why in the rip do we have tombstones? Well, there's only one reason. To what? Remember. Remember. Now think about that. Jesus tarries his coming. One day your life will be reduced to what? Tombstone. Doesn't that make you feel good? Doesn't that like pump you up? <laughs> Let's do it this way. Now I'll get to this in a moment. How many of you in this room, there are a few of you going to be weird and be able to go down the line, but how many of you in this room know the names of your grandparents? Would you raise your hand? All right, I, I do too. How many of you know the names of your great-grandparents? Would you raise your hand? Yeah, a few more. All right. How many of you know the names of your great-great-grandparents? Yeah, see, there's the weird ones. You ancestry people. How many of you know the names of your great, 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 great grandparents? Just a couple of you weirdos. No, we don't think about them. Why? Because we don't care. They don't matter. They were here today and what? Gone tomorrow. In life without Jesus is a life here today and gone tomorrow. Number two, without Jesus, you work today and you are replaced tomorrow. Solomon gets specific and wants to give evidence that his thesis statement in verse two is true, that basically it's irrefutable. And so he says, let's look around. Let's be an empiricist. Let's just look around at the world through our observational powers and abilities. And what do we see? Well, let's start with work, for example. What does a man, it says in verse 3, gain by all the toil, all the work at which he works in toils under the sun? Well, here's the deal. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. I like, again, the Eugene Peterson message paraphrase. What's there to show for a lifetime of work? A lifetime of working your fingers to the bone? Well, one generation goes its way. The next one arrives, but nothing changes. It's business as usual for old planet Earth. That word toil recalls the curse of Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, where the Bible says you will work, you will toil by the sweat of your brow, and then what happens? You turn back into dust. You turn back into dust. You, you, you're born, you work, you die, and somebody takes your place, and the cycle repeats over and over again. This is what life is like under the sun. Now, I mentioned that phrase, under the sun, appears almost 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Again, it refers to life from a mere human perspective. My son John puts it this way, if this world is all there is, if there is no God, no afterlife, and no final judgment, then everything is meaningless. 
You see, brothers and sisters, I don't care how much money you make in this world, how many toys you accumulate. When you die, you do leave it all behind. The one with the most toys does not win. He dies. She dies. And they leave every single toy behind for somebody else to play with. That's why the Lord Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 8 and verse 36, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And the answer is it does not profit him a single thing, nothing. People come and go, only the earth remains forever. The New Leaven translation says only the earth never changes how many of you remember the rock band kansas would you raise your hand yeah we oldies know that you young folks y'all y'all have the sorriest music today by the way i don't i know this does it's not part of my notes but listen the 60s and 70s were rocking the 90s were pathetic i mean they were absolutely pathetic a little better today but not really much kansas remember they wrote that song what dust in the wind was he thinking about Ecclesiastes when he wrote that song? Listen to the words. They're powerful. I close my eyes only for a moment, and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes, a curiosity, dust in the wind. All they are is dust in the wind. Verse 2, same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see it. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Verse 3. Now, don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and the sky. It slips away. And all your money won't buy you another moment. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. We are dust in the wind. Everything is dust in the wind. And without Jesus, you work today and you are replaced tomorrow because it's all dust in the wind. Number three, without Jesus, you, you live your life and nothing really changes. You live your life and nothing really changes. Look at what Solomon says there in verse 4. Generations come and go, but the world stays just the same. And to prove his point, he's going to give us three examples from nature, the sun, the wind, the sea. And he'll give us three more examples from human life, our human experience, uh, speaking, seeing, and hearing and again his point is picked up again in verse 9 there's nothing new under the sun things have always been like this things will always be like this in this fallen broken world it is nothing more than a mere treadmill of futile existence let's start verse 5 the sun the sun rises in the east and the word in hebrew means it runs pantingly it runs like an exhausted runner to the other side. And then the next morning, what happened? It starts the whole thing over again. Take the wind, verse 6. The wind blows south and north, and it goes around and around and around day after day. It is the same every day. Nothing really changes. Take water. 
Streams flow into the sea, but the sea is never satisfied. The SV says the streams, uh, the, the sea is never full. And go and return to the source of the streams. Watch them day after day after day. And what do they do? The same thing again and again and again. It doesn't change. It's all monotony. Even nature itself in this fallen world has nothing to look forward to. Perhaps that is why in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, the Apostle Paul, in talking about how we look forward to our glorified resurrection body, says creation itself is groaning. It is groaning. It can't wait until you and I are glorified because then they will be glorified with the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Human existence is no different. Look at what he says there in verse 8. Everything is weariness. Uh, everything is like a, a monotonous prison house that imprisons us. Life in, uh, in this world apart from Christ, full of sorrow, full of suffering, full of tragedy. It doesn't make sense. We ask the question over and over again, why, 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 why? For example, look at verse 8. Look at words. A man cannot utter it. Words are not sufficient to deal with the meaninglessness of life. There's a lot of talk, but no real answers. When I was at UTA, uh, University of Texas at Arlington, doing my PhD work, most of my professors uh, were either atheist or agnostic. And I want to be fair. They were some smart men and women, some very smart men and women. And I've often said they asked in my classes, a lot of good questions. But they had no good answers. A lot of good questions, but no good answers. Talked and talked and talked and talked, but nothing really of significance for this life. Take your eyes. The Bible says there in verse 8, uh, the eye is not satisfied with its seeing. You can never see enough to deal with the meaninglessness of life. Yeah, you'll see some things that are beautiful, but you'll also see things that will break your heart and bring you to tears. How about your ears? He says there, the ears can never be filled with hearing. You never hear enough to deal with the meaninglessness of life. Think about the news. <laughs> you turn on the news, it doesn't matter whether it's CNN, Fox, God forbid, MSNBC, and you watch that stuff, CBS, ABC, NBC, and what do you find? Despair, sorrow, pain. My wife the other day was watching TV, and she started weeping. I said, what, what's, what is going on? And she was watching the tragedy of Sudan unfold before her eyes. And part of the reason is we've been to the Sudan. We have dear brothers and sisters in Sudan. But you flip on the news, crime, abuse, rape, murder, poverty, war. Is that really all there is to life? Solomon says, I can't see enough. I can't say enough. I can't hear enough to make sense of this world I'm trapped in. As Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stone says, what? I can't get no satisfaction. I wonder if a lot of these rock seekers were reading Ecclesiastes when they wrote their stupid songs because it sure sounds like it. You know, I never thought of Mick Jagger reading the Bible, but you know, maybe I need to broaden my horizon a little bit. Well, 
Verse 9 and 10 brings this kind of a particular section to a close. And he just says, look, here's the deal. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. What they did yesterday, they'll be doing today and tomorrow. Bottom line, there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? No, not really. It's already been in the ages before all of us. As the proverbial saying in our day goes, the more things change, what? The more things stay the same. You're born, you live, you die. End of the story for a life lived merely under the sun. Nothing is new and nothing really changes. Number four, without Jesus, you try and create a legacy, but nobody remembers. Verse 11 could be talking about things. That's the ESV uh, primary rendering, although it does give you a little footnote there and notes it could be referring to people. Uh, both the Christian Standard Bible and the NIV go in that direction. And personally, I think that is a better way of understanding it. There's no remembrance of former people. Nor will there be any remembrance of people yet to come among those who come after them. Again, Solomon's point is chilling, isn't it? You're born, you live, you die, and you are forgotten. As one man well said, the grim reaper is the great equalizer. He has your name. He has your address. He has the date of your death. And I got news for you. He will be on time for you. And he will be on time for me. Old Testament scholar Jerry Shepherd summarizes this very, very well. I quote, philosophers today ask the question, you may remember this when you were in middle school or high school. If a tree falls in the forest and there's no one to hear it, does it actually make a sound? Remember that question? I don't know why they raised it, but they did. Well, Kohelet has a similar but much more important question. If a man is born and lives and dies, and then after he dies, no one remembers him, did he ever really live. Koheleth despairs because he knows that one day he too, listen, this is going to bless you, he one day too will join the thousands of nameless, faceless, forgotten people who once played an important part on the earth stage. The message for the readers is clear, nor will you escape such a fate. Any funerals or memorials conducted in your honor will only be temporary Brief delays before the world resumes its activity full scale. This blessed me. The morning after you're dead and gone, the stock market will open. The trains will run. The planes will fly. Children will play. Do you suppose that it might have been otherwise? Fools deceive yourselves no longer. But hear me and hear me well. When you are dead and gone a long, long time, no one will remember your name but one person. And his name is Jesus. Jesus knew you before you were created. Jesus is intimately aware of every detail in your life. And when you are dead and gone and cold in the grave, there'll be one who loves you and one who remembers you. And his name 
is Jesus. Number five, without Jesus, you can do everything and it does not make you happy. Now, I want to put everything in perspective. As you read Ecclesiastes, it's important that we remain balanced. You say, what do you mean by that? We don't need to forget that this world that God made is full of good things. In other words, a great God has made many, many good things that he wants you to enjoy in the proper way and with the proper perspective. David Gibson, a pastor in Scotland, says Ecclesiastes, in one sense, should delight us. God is not a killjoy. This is why 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. God intends for us to enjoy his good world, but we must enjoy it in his particular way. Jesus said it best. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in what? All these things, all these good things of the earth will be added unto you. What's the problem? We do one of two things. Number one, we leave God out of our lives. And number two, we turn good things into God things and thereby we become idolaters. The teacher reminds us in verse 12 that he's been the king and it's at least implied he's been the king quite a while and he is almost certainly therefore an old man looking back over life and he says in verse 12 he says look I've been the king over Israel and Jerusalem and I applied I worked and in my heart in and who I am on the inside not just this beating thing but in my inner person I I put myself I applied to seek and to search out wisdom in fact, all that is done under the sun, and I'm going to confess to you, I don't know why God asked us to do this because as fallen human beings, it's an unhappy business. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the sons of Adam, to the children of men to be busy with. But I, I've seen it all. I've been everywhere. I've done everything. And let me just simply tell you, done under the sun, it's all vanity. In fact, I like this word picture. It's like trying to catch wind with a net. Could you imagine what you would think if you went outside one day and there's a man with a pole and a net and he's, he's after, you know, chasing things, you know, over here. And you say, sir, are you trying to catch some butterflies? No. Not trying to catch a bird? No. Well, what are you trying to catch? Wind. You'd probably call 911. And ask for the people with the white straight jackets to show up. That's what I would think because you say, that man's mad. Yeah. And living life without Jesus is mad. Living life without a place for God is sheer insanity. It's vanity. It's like trying to chase the wind. But then he says, let me just give you an example. What is crooked, verse 15, cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. Let me give you a, a Danny Aiken paraphrase that I think captures what verse 15 is saying. You can't straighten out a morally crooked world. It's sinful and broken beyond repair. This is something only God can do. And you can't put a puzzle together when some of the pieces are missing. Missing. You can't balance the ledger if some of the money is missing. You count, cannot count money that is not there. 
And as Solomon will say throughout the 12 chapters, you can try wealth, you can try work, you can try women, lots of them. And by the way, he would know. 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 3 reminds us he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And at the end of his life, he says, vanity of vanity, meaningless, meaningless position, power, possessions, prestige. It's all chasing the wind. It makes no sense. You never get what you want if you leave God out. Number six. Without Jesus, you can learn it all, and it will only cause you pain. Look at it. I said in my heart, in my inner self, I've acquired not just wisdom, great wisdom. In fact, I'm the smartest man on the earth. I I surpass all who went over Jerusalem before me. Furthermore, my heart has had great experience. I've not only studied it, I've lived it. Wisdom and knowledge. Indeed, I applied. I gave my heart to know wisdom. And then I need to add a commentary, and it didn't get me anywhere. It didn't, it didn't satisfy me. It, it didn't help me. So I said, all right, I'll be an idiot. I'll be a fool. Uh, I'll pursue madness, and I will pursue folly. In other words, Solomon says, I did it all. The good and the bad, the smart and the foolish. And you know what I learned when I did all of this? It's just like trying to catch wind with a net. Indeed, the summation of chapter one in much wisdom, there's a lot of vexation. And he who increases knowledge actually increases his sorrow, much grief, much pain. Some of you would know the very famous atheist philosopher, Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was a brilliant philosopher and thankfully an honest one. And Bertrand Russell said this, and I quote, We stand on the shore of an ocean, crying to the night and the emptiness. Sometimes a voice answers out of the darkness, but it's the voice of one drowning. And in a moment, the silence returns. The world seems to be quite dreadful, doesn't it? The unhappiness of most people is very great, and I often wonder how they even endure it. To know people well is to know their tragedy is usually the central thing about which their lives are built. And I suppose if they did not live most of the time in the things of the moment, they would not be able to go on. I close. I have a very dear friend. He's an atheist or an agnostic on his better day. He moved to Dallas, Texas when I was a professor at a Bible college there, and he lived with us for six months. He wanted to see what Bible-believing evangelicals were like, not from the outside shooting at us, but actually living in our community. He came to all of our classes. In fact, he came to my uh, New Testament class and my systematic theology class. He went on a mission trip to El Salvador, got shot at, by the way, which I still think is funny but because he didn't get killed. But I'm thinking, here's an atheist on a mission trip, and he gets shot at. It did shake him up. I wish he had brought him to Christ, but it didn't. Later, he went with us to Israel on a, on a Holy Land tour, and I can still remember the day he walked into the empty tomb, came back out, and I couldn't help myself. I said, see, I told you it was empty. He's been gone a long time, and he just kind of chuckled. Well, at the end of his experience, he wrote a book. 
It's a really well-done book. It's not all that popular. In fact, Random House, his publisher, nearly did not publish the book because they thought it was too positive about Christianity. But in that book, he's extremely, incredibly honest about what life is like for the atheist and the agnostic who believes this life is all there is. I just want you to listen very carefully to what he wrote. I'll have to clean it up a little bit at two places, but you'll know what he actually said. We on the religious left have no beliefs at all, no authority to tell us who we are, where we came from, where we're going, or why. Our shrines are either stuffed full of false idols that we shuffle at random, or they, or they are kept empty on purpose. The suspicion might be at this point that I'm some sort of neo-closet conservative. I am not. I couldn't care less about someone else's traditional values. I yield to no one in my nostalgia for the 60s. Nevertheless, we would all agree that this culture is nearly overwhelmed by all the BS and bad faith, by the literally spellbinding vacuity, top to bottom, left to right. We do worship the worthless, as Solzhenitsyn asserted. And this idolatry is the engine of the whole system. Everyone knows it. The religiously orthodox, that's you and me, are correct when they argue that the irreligious world is not sustaining the rest of us. And we even joke about it with this bumper sticker of our own, life's a female dog and then you die. Life's a, and then you die. But let me tell you the rest of the story. Mike came to our house right before he left Dallas, Texas to go back to Manhattan where he lives. I, by the way, still stay in contact with him. He has not come to Christ. I, I still pray for him, and this is going on now for close to 35 years. But the last time he was in our home, we had dinner. He loved Charlotte, loved my boys. They were little then. And after dinner, we were sitting there, just he and I, and I said, Mike, I, I just want to ask you a question. What's the bottom line? I mean, you spent six months with us. I know that you think we're a bunch of crazy uh, fundamentalists. And he said, no, I don't think that. I said, yeah, you do. And he said, you're right, I do. I said, all right, but I also think you love me. And he says, well, I do love you and, and, and your wife and your boys. I said, okay, what's the bottom line? He said, that's easy. It's the resurrection of Jesus. I said, well, I would agree with you, but why do you say that? And here's what this atheist said. He said, well, Danny, if the resurrection is true, it all, it all makes sense. It all comes together. You see, if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then number one, there is a God. Number two, he is that God. Number three, that means the Bible is true because he said it was true. And number four, that means heaven and hell are real. And number five, he makes all the difference. I said, that's pretty good theology for an atheist. So I said, okay, but you don't believe in the resurrection. He said, no, I, I, Danny, I, I'm an atheist. I don't even believe there's a God. I said, okay, help this dumb fundy out. Tell me what really happened on the first Easter morning. 
And he looked at me and a little grin crossed his face and he said, well, I don't know. And I said, what do you mean you don't know? He said, well, Danny, I've looked at all the evidence and I have to be honest with you, there's a lot of evidence that number one, the tomb was empty and number two, the disciples were convinced they saw the risen Christ. But I'm an atheist. I don't even believe there's a God and I'll never forget this as long as I live because he said, so I guess... I'll just have to suspend my judgment for now. And I'm not an emotional person, especially back then. But a tear began to run down my face and I said to him what I would say to you this morning if you don't know Jesus. I would hate to think that you're going to go to hell on suspended judgment. I said, Mike, your problem is not up here. Your problem's right here. You just don't want to give your life to Jesus and find that he indeed is the answer to all the questions you'll ever have. And my atheist friend said to me as we closed our conversation, you might be right. Now listen, don't stop praying for me. Which I've always found fascinating that an atheist would say to me, don't stop praying for me. Well, I haven't stopped praying for him. Because I think he's right. If there is no God, life is a, a dog. Then you die. But if there is a God and his name is Jesus, the whole thing comes together. The whole thing makes sense. And life is not vanity of vanities. It is a life of joy after joy, blessing after blessing, till you're in his presence forever and ever. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this book called Ecclesiastes because it really does show us what life is like without Jesus. It shows us the foolishness of living life as if this life is all there is and there is no God who made us, who loves us, and who has rescued us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray if there's even one man or woman, boy or girl here today who has never come to understand the great love of God through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross in paying for our sins and what he did in rising from the dead and what he offers, eternal life, life more abundant, life more free, life more fulfilling, life more meaningful than anyone could ever hope or imagine. It is my prayer that today, they would make that greatest of all decisions and give their life to Jesus Christ and discover just who they are, why he made them, and what he wants to do in their lives now and for all of eternity. Lord, may you accomplish that for your great glory and their good. We ask this and we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.